Let's pray. Holy Father, we bow before you again. Tremble at your word. We tremble once again at your mercy and at your great kindness. Week after week, Lord, we are surrounded with trophies of your grace. We are surrounded with the power of the cross, proof of the power of the cross manifested in the lives of transformed men and women. Men and women who have been radically transformed and changed by the power of the gospel. And Lord, when we come together, Lord, when we worship together, we sense your power. And we again have a, a minor taste of what it will be like to be in heaven with the multitudes worshiping you. And even this morning, our hindered worship makes us long for the day when we will be unhindered and unencumbered and undistracted. But Father, until that time comes and until we don't need to pray for that anymore, we pray this morning that you would grant that to us. That now as we tremble at your word and seek with all our heart, soul, mind and might to submit those faculties to this holy word, that you would give us grace to receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. So God, I thank you for this church. Thank you for the men and women of this church. Pray you would bless us. Lord, we pray for Pastor James again this morning, Saran, their children. Now, Lord, you would refresh them much, that you would encourage them much. That Lord, you would strengthen them and give them grace. God, that they would sense your nearness and your presence and that when they return to us, that they would return just refreshed and rejuvenated and ready to continue on in the ministry. Lord, I thank you so much again for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week was indeed uh, just a great blessing and great encouragement as we not only heard from the Word... Um, but we saw firsthand just the work of the gospel in the lives of even men and women in this church, seeing how God has uh, you know, rescued orphans and, and even uh, rescued sinners in their distress. And I was watching the news this week, and I saw the story, maybe you heard of it as well, um, this man who was recently arrested for bank robbery. I think he'd been robbing banks the last five months to a year, and, and you know, they'd known this guy for a while, they'd been trying to catch him, they finally caught him. And it turns out that the reason he was robbing banks was that he had two, you know, two daughters, seniors in, call, or seniors in high school, and they had been accustomed to a certain type of living. You know, they mentioned that they had been living around you know, 100000 a year, and that there's a certain lifestyle that goes along with that you know, oftentimes. And uh, some, some, some things happened financially where this man and this family wasn't able to live at that you know, height anymore. And so in order for this man to provide for his daughters to live according to that lifestyle, he began robbing banks. And so they caught this guy, and on the news they were interviewing these two daughters. They were twins. And they were talking about how proud of their father they were. They were talking about uh, that their dad was their hero. That he would go out and he would rob banks so that, you know, not just so they can have bread, but so they can have nice cars. So they can have, you know, go to a good college. And they were saying, these girls were, she was saying, literally, 
my dad's my Robin Hood. And I was like, he, what, he robs from the rich and gives to the rich? I mean, how, you know, how is that? How is that? How is, the other girl was like, my dad's my hero. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be sarcastic in any way, but, you know, the men and women of this church are my heroes, little late heroes. Right? The men and women who have sacrificed their lives, their money, to rescue widows and orphans in their distress. Those kinds of men and women should be our heroes. Those kind of parents are heroes. And yet we are reminded even more potently that the real hero is the big H hero. It's our father. That our adoption of children is only a small manifestation of the power of the gospel where our Father in heaven rescues us as widows, rescues us helpless poor sinners in our distress, and He reconciles us to Himself through the cross. And so last week our text was uh, James chapter 1, verse 27. And we studied, James writes this, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I thought this morning that it would be good to have only looked at the first aspect of that verse this morning finish the verse off with the last aspect. Concerning James 1.27, we learn that there are two aspects to, tr- to religion, to true religion. The first aspect we studied was marked by the adjective pure. This aspect of religion is characterized by the humble ministry of visiting widows and orphans in their distress. The second adjective, undefiled, is characterized by the late the later phrase, to keep oneself unstained by the world. So if we break up these two aspects of religion, we can read the verse this way. We can break it up. Pure religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained by the world. And last week we studied on that pure religion, ministering to widows and orphans in their distress. And in that study, again, we learned how God's spiritual adoption of us should induce us to consider the earthly adoption of others. But it's that latter aspect, the negative aspect of the verse, that we study this morning. So we connect now and focus. And we can read a verse this way. Undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's uh, spend a few moments just for a moment just reflecting on the word religion. The word religion we learned last week can be translated as worship. It calls attention to the external acts carried on by the devotees. Now you remember that this word religion uh, only appears four times in the Greek New Testament. It appears... uh, One time in Colossians, where Paul is using the word religion to describe false religion, the worship of angels. The second time, um, Paul uses it in, Paul declared it in Acts 26, when he was talking about his former manner of life as a Pharisee. That is the religion of self-works, which Paul condemns as helpless and hopeless. The third use is here in James chapter 1, verse 26. And James here uses it in connection again with hypocritical religion. 
If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So he's saying here, if a man says that he's a servant, if he's a worshiper of God, and yet he can't control his own tongue, this man's religion is worthless. That's a strong statement, but can we understand why? Because Jesus Christ said very clearly, out of the mouth comes that which fills the heart. And so James is saying very clearly, you can say you're religious, you can go to church, you can get baptized, you can take communion, you can sing songs. But if the majority, if the reality of your life and your mouth is filth, right? it's scubalon, it's vulgarity, it's ungodliness, what's, what it's showing is this is the state of your real heart, that your religion is false. And this is exactly what James is intending to show us in verses 26 and 27 when he uses again the word religion. What he is trying to show us is the external deeds of religion reveal the true internal heart of the worshiper. The external deeds of religion reveal the true internal heart of the worshiper. This idea of the external revealing the internal is extremely important as we look at the text that we have before us. Because what we're going to see this morning again is that one's external deeds are the revealer of one's internal heart. Look at that phrase, uh, keep oneself unstained. This is describing the negative task of the Christian. This is the negative, dirty work of being a believer. To keep oneself unstained is the action. The word keep in this context, it means to persevere, to remain in a present state. Now we can thus deduce what that present state is. It's purity. It's holiness. It's cleanliness. It's godliness. It's righteousness. And we are called to remain in that present state. So, we must ask the question now, what is it that threatens that state? What is it that is a threat, that is a detriment to the state which the gospel has made us in. It's the world. It's the term the world. It's the cosmos. Cosmos here is not the material world, but the world of unredeemed humanity and its hostility and hatred of the moral standards of God. The way I would think about this is that the term world is just a corporate way of talking about sinners and their united front against God. Let me say that again. The world is the corporate way of talking about sinners and their united front against God. The world, James describes later on, in the wisdom of this world, is that pattern of earthly living that's earthly, natural, and demonic. It is the mind of secularism and the heart of paganism that pervades all that goes on in the lives of the men and women of this planet. And it is the close proximity of the words God and world in this verse that makes the sparks fly, right? This is a positive wire and a negative wire crossing. I believe the term God here is used in the authoritative sense. That is, God is used here in the sense of His greatness and His majesty. God in all His might and power. God in His absolute sovereignty and rule over the nations. It is this God and all that He is that the world hates. 
It is, it is this God that the nations are in uproar against and the kings devise a vain thing. It was this God that the Bible says that, that you and I raged against. That you and I were personally hostile against until something magnificent happened to us. And that's where the term father comes in. Because there's a distinction between the two titles here, God and father. If God refers to his authoritative status, then father refers to his relational position. Father means God in his nearness and his fellowship with the saints. That's what we studied last week. We studied last week how the term Father just cries out to us adoption. Father cries out to us the mercy which God showed us when we were once helpless orphans. The Lord, He heard our cry. And He redeemed us from the world. This term, Father, does not speak of God as the Father of the world. It speaks of God as the Father of those that He has redeemed from the world. That's us. I grew up um I grew up in that kind of, you know, evangelicalism that pervades, you know, America today. I grew up in a, the kind of churches that talked much about this term the world. And sadly, it was greatly misunderstood. Many families, many Sunday school and teachers, well-meaning though they were, wanted to give us, they wanted to give me and my friends the low down on worldliness. They want to um, they wanted to talk to us about the kind of music that we shouldn't listen to and the kind of movies that we shouldn't watch. And maybe you maybe you remember as well. You know they said don't listen to the Beatles because if you scratch the records backwards it says worship Satan, right? Or they told you uh, you know the band Kid uh, Kiss stands for Kids in Satan's Service, and they told you all these worldly things about why you shouldn't listen to certain things and why you shouldn't do certain things and. You know, they tried to get us to avoid the world and they, they told us to stay away from drugs and alcohol and sex. And that's the kind of teaching that I was sat under. It was, this, it was this constant endeavor for people to keep me from the world. But you know what they never taught me? They never, they never taught me that the world wasn't outside my own home. The world was inside my own heart. They never explained to me that the world was the evil inside my own soul. The Scriptures are adamant that every man and woman is born into the world and that the world has been born into them. We are natural pagans by birth. We are born naturally in love with this world. No one had to teach us to love sin. And as Puritan Thomas Watson said, we sucked in sin as natural as our mother's milk. The, the, the goal, the... The responsibility of the church is not to tell our little children to avoid the world. The responsibility of the church is to first tell our children the world is in them. That they need a transformation of our own, their own hearts like we did. This is exactly what Apostle Paul said in Titus chapter 3. He said, For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs 
That word heir, that's, a, that's adoption terminology. Paul says, we once were foolish, disobedient, enslaved, but God in His mercy, He made us heirs. That means He gives us everything that He gives to the Son. He saved us from the world. He adopted us and made us His own. And this is what the term Father refers to. And so last week we saw how the Father's rescue of us from this fallen world should motivate us to adopt children in this physical world. Or at least to minister to them however we can. And as we looked at um, our Father's adoption of us, and our adoption of, and our ministry to widows and orphans, we made some parallels. We made some parallels how our adoption of others illustrates God's adoption of us. Remember some of those correlations. Sinners are unloved and helpless, so are orphans. We did not seek after God. Orphans did not seek after you. God saves us not because we are beautiful in His sight, and we don't adopt orphans because they are beautiful in our sight. Sinners were thankless and oblivious to all that God has done for them. An adopted child, especially a little child, is completely oblivious to the great mercy that earthly parents have shown her. Christians were the offspring of another father, the devil, and yet are given all the rights and privileges of a natural son. Orphans were fathered by some other man and woman and yet are loved as if they were the offspring of your own body. Adoption was infinitely costly to the father. Earthly adoption is extremely costly to us. Now, we made some of those parallels. But we must remember that earthly adoption, it's only an illustration of heavenly adoption. Earthly adoption is, is it's arguing from the less to the great, from the lesser to the greater. It's an illustration of the lesser to the greater. Earthly adoption is a shadow of the greater spiritual truth of God's adoption of sinners. So, let me give some reasons briefly why heavenly adoption is even greater than earthly adoption. I'm speaking to all of you now to help you understand what God has done. In earthly adoption, the child's name often changes. But in heavenly adoption, our Father does not simply change our name. He changes our nature. Earthly adoption changes one's temporal home. Heavenly adoption obviously changes one's eternal home. Earthly adoption gives you new brothers and sisters by law. God's adoption gives us brothers and sisters by grace. Earthly adoption gives one physical food, clothing, and shelter. Heavenly adoption gives one living water and the bread of life. Earthly adoption can grant you a new home. God's adoption grants you a new heart. Earthly adoption grants you loving parents. Heavenly adoption grants you a loving God. Earthly adoption saves people in the world. Heavenly adoption saves people from the world. And it is because our Father has saved us from this world that He earnestly desires that we remain unstained from that which He has saved us from. Which is why, just as the sparks fly when this term God and world come in close proximity, the sparks fly again when the term Father and world come into close proximity. Just as the transcendent God hates the world for what it does to His glory, 
So the eminent father hates the world for what it does to his children. The contrast of the terms God world speaks of the Lord and his hatred for what sin does to his glory. But the terms world and father contrast the Lord and his hatred of what the world does to his children. So, we ask the question why does God yearn for his children to keep themselves unstained by the world? My answer is. Because nothing affirms us as His children more than a life of holiness. Track with me here for a few moments. Three times, and only three times, does the New Testament say dogmatically that God is. God is. John 4.24 declares what? God is Spirit. 1 John 4.8 declares that God is love. 1 John 1.5 declares dogmatically that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So what does John mean? What does John mean when he says that God is light? That's Apostle John's way of saying God is holy and in Him there is no sin at all. There's no darkness at all. There's no blemish. There's no stain upon His character. He is perfect. He is awesome in power. So 1 John 1, 7 says that if we walk in the light as He, God Himself, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And in our text, this is where the holiness of God and the adoption of the Father come to the forefront. Because holy is what our Father has made us. And it is because we are the children of a holy God that we must remain unstained by the impurities of an unholy world. A life of holiness is what the Father has saved us for. You know this well, Ephesians 1, 4-5. Ephesians 1, 4-5, pronounce this and herald this. Paul writes, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, Why did God choose us before the foundation of the world? So that we would be holy and blameless. In love, He predestined us to what? To adoption. To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention, or you can read, according to His good pleasure. So it fills the Father's heart with joy to have a household holy children, to have a household of men and women who magnify His holiness. Adoption is, then, the beginning of a new relationship in which God takes sinners and saves them from the world. So this means this, then. It means adoption initiates sanctification. Adoption initiates sanctification. Salvation is the act where the Father removes us from the world, but sanctification is the process where God removes the world from us. Sanctification removes our likeness of the world and replaces it with a holy likeness of our Father. And this is why God's Word is so serious about us living in holiness and hating the world. Let me read a few more texts to you. 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world nor the things of the world. Why? 
Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, it's perishing, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So what is the will of God? It's to hate the world, it's to loathe the world, it's to despise the world, it's to keep oneself unstained by the world. 1 John 3, 1-3, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The man and woman who has their eye on Jesus Christ will strive for purity, because he longs to be like his older brother, Jesus Christ. John tells us here the pinnacle of our adoption is being conformed to the image of the Son of God, and this desire will motivate us to holiness. If you have been born again, your new desire is to be holy as He is holy. And if you have this desire, you will labor with all your God-given might to keep yourself unstained by the world. Jesus said it this way, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, again, from these texts, what do we see? The overall goal of our adoption as sons is to reflect the holiness of our God. Few things can thrill the heart of a father more than seeing his children reflect his holiness. I think all through life you would agree, especially parents, that parents are looking for signs. They're looking for signs of similarity between their children and themselves. They're looking for signs of seeing their children reflect them. Every child will absolutely manifest some of the traits of his parents. Now you guys recognize this in in yourselves. The way that maybe you talk or your quirks. The way I say goodnight all the time. That's because my dad always said that. It's my favorite terminology. I found in the last couple years that I see my dad and myself... More and more, I start seeing um, my grandpa and me. Some of these things drive me nuts. Remember as a kid, I would walk into the room. My dad would just, you had this picture window in the backyard. Sometimes he would just be standing there. And I would walk in. What are you doing, Daddy? He'd be like, oh, nothing, just thinking. And I do that for myself doing all the time. I'd just be standing there. And the lady walks in. What are you doing, Daddy? Nothing, nothing. And all of a sudden, I'll realize, I'm just like my dad. I'm doing the exact same thing my dad does. All right. I noticed the same thing. I noticed the same thing with Derek. I'm going to pick on Derek for a second. I noticed this thing at, with Derek at retreat. I watched Derek one time, and even that last week we were out playing football, and he's standing like this. <laughs> and then at, then at the retreat, this ta- at the retreat, he even topped it off. He was doing this, and he went. I said, you know what? That's Bob Jr. All right, little Bob Jr. And you know why he's doing that? Because he, he it's just natural. It's just instinctual. He watches his dad do it, and so yeah, that's what we do. We start doing things that our dad does, and those things are enduring to us, right? We, we love it when we see our kids, you know, when they're doing good, right things, right? We love it, you know. We want to see our children manifest us. But as we grow older, and as our children grow older, I haven't experienced this yet, but I, I know this is what I want to experience. 
As my kids get older, I'm not interested in the little cutesy mannerisms. I'm interested in character. When my daughters get older, I want to see in them the manifestations of their father and mother in terms of godliness. I want to see maturity. I want to see integrity. I want to see truthfulness. I want to see trustworthiness. And as we grow older, we're not looking at our kids to see little cutesy imitations. We're looking to see that we impacted our children in a life that's meaningful, that's worthwhile. And so that's what we're looking for. We're looking for our children not to just carry on the family name. We're looking for our children to carry on the family conduct, the family holiness. This call of James to keep oneself unstained by the world is a call to carry on the family name, the father's name. Nothing is of more profound privilege than to represent our Father as men and women of holiness. Holiness is the boldest expression of our adoption and the clearest assurance of our adoption. Nothing speaks more of our adoption than bearing our Father's likeness than holiness. And nothing assures us of truly being children of God than manifesting the holiness of God. You are to be perfect as who? As your heavenly Father is perfect. Which means, on the flip side of this, nothing smells more of false religion than manifesting the world, than being like the world. Let me change directions for a moment. James 4.4 James says to these men and women he's writing to that are being provoked, they're toying with the world. He says, you adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This verse tells us that no one who loves the world is a true child of God. Nothing is more natural to sinners than a love for this world. Nothing exemplifies mankind like their love for the world. And nothing should be the exact opposite of the believer. Revelation 18.9, you guys, the great tribulation. Revelation 18.9 tells us that when God destroys, you know, this future Babylon, right? When God destroys this future center of the world's commercial center of corruption, the commercial center of wickedness, there's going to be this certain city and nation which is the hub of, and the means of all this worldliness and ungodliness. And Revelation 18.9 says that God is going to crush it. And when He does, it says that the kings of the nations are going to weep. They're going to beat their chests. They're going to be miserable and they're going to mourn. Because all that they loved is destroyed. All that they sought after is gone. It's ruined. They will mourn over their loss of their ability to satisfy their ungodly lusts. So in love with the world are they, that when all their world is gone, they will writhe and be in anguish of soul. Saints, James 1.27 is written to you and to me, who profess to be sons and daughters of God. James writes, because few things are as revealing of a professing believer's soul as the way they interact with the world. So I, to the point, ask of you, how are you conducting yourself in the world? What is your relationship like with the things of this world? 
Are you striving to keep yourself unstained by the world? Are you fleeing this world? We must have the spiritual mindset of one who is fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah. We must have the mindset that though all looks pristine and orderly, the fire and brimstone are coming. We must be like Lot whose righteous soul was tormented by all the depravity that surrounded him. Are you fleeing the world and its grip on you? There was one point in Jesus' ministry where he looked at his disciples and he said, in one of the shortest verses in the Bible, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Remember that God told her not to look back at the wicked city. But this woman was so in love with the world that she could not bear the thought of the destruction of the place she loved. That little glance, as harmless as it seemed, said everything about her. It revealed the true state of her heart. That glance declared that she did not want to flee the world. She wanted to be in the world. That final look said it all. It said she was being forced to run from the place where her heart really longed to be. Home is where the heart is. And her heart was in Sodom. And her love of the world was met with the judgment of God. What did God do? He turned her into a pillar of salt. Now, if we're honest, all of us have been like Lot's wife. All of us have looked back. As believers... By the grace of God, we're fleeing the world. But we're we're looking back over our shoulder. We're tempted because we have a heart still inclined to Sodom and Gomorrah. I know that I have. I was recently reflecting upon God's grace in my life. Through this summer, I have uh, practically... Uh, striven is that a word I've, I've practically attempted to think more of God's grace to think more of the gospel and this led me to a lot of reflection and even uh, remembrance of my own testimony and as I was meditating upon this meditating and remembering God's grace in my life I was reminded how, reminded how at one point in my life as sin was being wrenched out of my life that it devastated me I was so distraught over what was being ripped out and what was being taken away. I wept uncontrollably. I speak this to my shame. Because as I look back now, and I remember somewhat of the agony and the pain and the tears, I understand now why I wept. I wept because God took away my idol. I wasn't weeping tears of joy. I was weeping tears over loss of Babylon. I was weeping tears over the loss of what I loved. And when it dawned on me sometime later that those tears represented my love for the world, then the tears of repentance came. When I realized that I wept over the world, then I began to weep for God. Then I began to weep over my sin. I realized how deeply rooted my love for the world truly was. And I cried out to God to forgive me. Do you weep over your failure to imitate the Father? Or do you weep at your loss of love of the world? 
Do you shed tears over what sin does to your relationship with the Father? Or do you shed tears that the Father has taken away what you love more? Saints, my prayer this week has been that we would be those who mourn over what our sin does to our relationship with the Father. Oh, my prayer is that we would be those who strive to keep ourselves unstained by the world because we love the purity and holiness that God has granted to us. Holiness is at the heart of adoption. Keeping oneself unstained by the world is the natural reflex of those who have had the deep stains of sin removed by the pure blood of Christ. Holy is the character of our God. And holiness is the determinative factor of His true children. So I ask you again, are you carrying on the family name? Let me encourage you now, then, toward your pursuit of holiness with some of the following things. Let me encourage you this way. First of all, and I think this, is, this will always be the most important Remember that adoption does not declare how great we are, but how gracious God is. Adoption does not, will not, can ever, will never mean that we are great, but it it will always mean that God is gracious. I understand there's a temptation in Christian churches to think that the cross speaks of how much God valued us, how worthy we were. It doesn't say that at all. Ephesians 1, 5-6 says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Our salvation is for His exaltation. Our adoption does not say how great we are, but how great God is. Uh, I recently heard of hear this story about a former uh, ambassador that served under former President Bush. And this ambassador was in this, some very important meetings and he became violently ill. And he had to leave. And later on that night, at 2 in the morning, the President of the United States called up this man and wanted to find out how he was doing. And this ambassador later on said, you know what, when the president called me, it didn't tell me how great I was. It told me what a great president he was. That's what the gospel says. That God would save us. That God would save us who are rebels and who are hostile. Will not and will never say how great we are. It will always pronounce how gracious God is. We must remember over and over that we have an amazing God. That we have a gracious God. Which leads us, secondly, to understand that the holiness our Father is calling us here, that our Father is calling us to here, is what the Puritans called gospel holiness. This is gospel holiness. The connection that we have made in our text is that holiness is founded in the grace of adoption. Holiness can only come from those who have been washed by the blood of Christ. 
if you're not adopted, if you're not a believer, if you're not born again, if you are striving to reconcile yourself to God through self-righteous acts, if you are trying to get saved by your works, you will utterly fail. And you'll be held in more contempt. The Gospel says that our righteous deeds are filthy rags. The Gospel says that our deeds will become righteous when God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. When God, through faith, grants you clean hands and a pure heart through faith in the Gospel, then the actions that you do will be pure. Then the actions that you do will be holy. But even for believers, holiness only comes through constant abiding. Believers will fail at holiness if they seek it in the flesh. Gospel holiness simply means that the gospel is what motivates holiness. It is the gospel that enables holiness. And therefore, gospel holiness is the only true holiness. When an earthly child, adopted child, grasps what it means that they were adopted, they can respond in two ways. They can be filled with anger that their birth parents abandoned them and that these other people stole them. Or they can respond in amazement that these complete strangers would adopt him and lavish incredible love upon him. When an adopted child grasps that kind of grace, he will fall even more in love with his parents. When sinners understand more and more what adoption means for them, it will cause them to strive even more and more towards holiness and the likeness of their father. Nothing tells our father that we have grasped the love that he has shed abroad in our hearts more than living in holiness. And so again, though we have heard this, I think, propounded for two years straight now, many of you are still living in petty sins all because you have not grasped the magnitude of grace you will continue to strive and fail because you reflect much upon your own life and not enough on the infinite grace of your Father. You are only, some of you are only familiar with boring theological terms, but you have little experience the deep warming of the love of God. And so what can we do? What can you do? But again, cry out to God. Help me understand the magnitude of the Gospel. Help me understand the magnitude of adoption. Thirdly, do not underestimate the power of holiness as a great tool of evangelism. Last week I said that few things are as radical to the world as when believers adopt unwanted children who have nothing to offer in return. I think that's true. But let's also remember that unbelievers also adopt. Angelina Jolie likes to adopt. Madonna right, likes to adopt. Michael Jackson likes to adopt. And I think we would agree that that is not because they understand the Gospel. Therefore, though adoption can be a great witness to the Gospel, nothing is a greater witness to the Gospel than love, but perhaps almost equal Nothing is a greater witness to the gospel than holiness. 
Nothing is more confronting, nothing is more supernatural, and nothing will cause more responsiveness from the world than holy living. Upon seeing the holiness of the children of God, the world will respond either with a longing to know this God or with a continued violent rejection of this God. Fourthly, there is a difference between using the world and loving the world. When we take that which is useful in the world and treat it like it was a necessity, like it were something our soul desperately needs, we stain our hearts. When that love is not of God, there is a constant anxiousness that accompanies that desire. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you understand what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying when there is an inordinate love for the things of the world. It's that inordinate desire where you're doing that which you know you shouldn't be doing and you're seeking after that which you know you shouldn't be seeking after. Now, we can get as petty as a pair of shoes, a new pants, a new dress, where you know that you shouldn't be at the mall, you know you shouldn't be wasting your time, spending your money, shopping more. You know you shouldn't be seeking after these things. And you know the reason is you're seeking to find some satisfaction. You're seeking to find some niche in your heart filled through the things of the world. Now, the object itself can be helpless and harmless. But because there is an inordinate love towards that object, that stains your soul. Worldliness does not simply mean avoiding bad movies, sexual immorality. It means avoiding the things of the world, loving the things of the world in a way that is not consistent with the love of God. So we understand to be in the world but not of the world. That means to use the world in appropriate means. It means, yes, goods, services, and purchases which are legitimate. But the Christian must constantly be on guard from allowing his own heart to get entangled in the affair of everyday life, entangled in the love of the things of this world. Whether that be another person, whether that be an object. And what we understand, we need to understand is, when we love those things that way, it stains our souls and it kills our joy. It supplants the joy of Christ in us. So, be on guard that way. Be on guard against going towards the things of this world. Lastly, I would say that this command is a habitual command. It is a command for us to recognize that we are and must constantly be waging war against the world. We must constantly be striving to keep ourselves unstained by the world. On May 8, 1945, the U.S. accepted unconditional surrender from the Germans. The war in Europe was over. If you look at those photos, you'll see tons of soldiers going like this. Why was that for victory in Europe? Victory in Europe. Footage shows New York going absolutely madhouse. People were going crazy. There was parades. There was ticker tape. People were partying. People were dancing. But one small town, Laverne, Minnesota, quietly put up their flags and they went home in sobriety. 
They did not run into the streets. They did not dance around. They were not shouting and hootering and hollering. Why? Because though there was victory in Europe, there was still a war in Asia. Though Germany had gone down, the Americans were still fighting the Japanese. These people could rejoice and thank God that that war had been won on one front. But there was still much to pay on another. You will do well to understand that conversion is only half the battle. You will do well to remember that though you have been saved, though you have been sanctified, though you have been justified, though you have been set apart, though you have been adopted, that we are still in a perpetual fight against the onslaught of the devil, against the onslaught of the things of this world. So you must learn to balance the two aspects of the Christian life, that of joyful celebration at God's adoption of us, as well as this wise sobriety as we continue to take up arms in our fight against the world. So let us this morning be those in a paradox are joyful, but at the same time very sober as we strive to keep ourselves unstained by the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again. We marvel again that You have redeemed us, You have purchased us at the cost of the One whom You loved the most, the One who magnified You the most, the One who perfectly reflected You the most, Your Son, this Son, You gave up on the cross, crushed on the cross, to purify sinners, to reconcile them to Yourself, that we might be called sons and daughters of God, to the praise of Your glory. So Lord, may we earnestly strive And I pray, O God, Your blessing upon the men and women here this morning. That they would be those who flee from the world. They would be those who seek to have the world just ripped out of their own hearts. (coughs) That we would be wise to know that though You have saved us from the world, there is still a desire for the world in us. And Father, that we need Your grace that these desires would be extracted from our hearts. Father, help us to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness and to keep ourselves unstained by the world. God, we thank You again for this morning, for Your grace and Your love for us. In Your name we pray.